What comes to mind when I say the word church? For a lot of people, it's a building, right? And one like this in particular, First Baptist, and a stage and seating and all of that. But most of you know better. Still, for a lot of other people, what comes to mind is a two-hour event in a building every Sunday. Often when I bump into another follower of Jesus from another church in this city or around and about, I ask the question, you know, hey, tell me about your church. And without fail, nine times out of ten, immediately people start to talk about the two-hour event. So our music is kind of like Bethel meets Hillsong meets indie techno, whatever. And we have pour-over coffee, and that's why, you know, the Holy Spirit is there or whatever. And the teaching's really cool. We have this thing and that thing and whatever. And sometimes I just want to interrupt and say, great, great, that's awesome. You have pour-over coffee. Well done. Tell me about your church. Not the event. Tell me about your church. Kind of like if you were to ask me, you don't know me, I don't know you, hey, John Mark, tell me about your family. And if I were to say, well, every Monday night we have dinner together. 6.30 p.m., we we have a round table, it's an Eames aluminum group, group, mid-century, really cool table. We sit around, we start with prayer, then we eat a plant-based diet. Not all the time, because I'm more vegan, but my wife is more sinful. And so, um, (laughs) you know... And you would interrupt me and you would say, whoa, wait, stop. That's great. Every Monday night you have, you have dinner together. Well done. Um, but tell me about your family. You have a wife, yes. You have kids. How many boys, girls? What neighborhood do you live in? What's your life together like? What are you passionate about, not passionate about? Tell me about your family. My point is that we come here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Well, for a lot of you it's more like every other Sunday. But we still love you. We come here on a regular basis, and I think it's easy to kind of just get sucked into the motion. You know, we come here, we stand up, we sing for a while, and then stuff in the community, and then it's like a TED Talk with the Bible and stuff, and we, and we get into it, and I think it's easy to forget the story that we are wrapped in is so much bigger than an event on a Sunday night. And so tonight, even if it's review for some of you, I just want to retell you that story. Let's start off in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. Uh, we left off last week with Jesus, and I just want to show you this. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave him authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and illness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go to the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go, rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Why did Jesus pick 12 apostles? Why not three or seven or 39? Why 12? Well, if you were a first century Jew, 12 was an evocative number. How many tribes are there in Israel? 12. Well, technically they're 13, but that's a whole other teaching we don't have time for. But there are 12. So if you were a first century Jew, when Jesus calls 12 apostles, you would know exactly what Jesus was saying. 
Jesus was saying that he is calling together a new Israel. Jesus is calling this little band of guys who are hyper-dysfunctional as you read the story to pick up where Israel left off and carry the story forward. And Jesus' 12 apostles form the nucleus of what we now call the church. Turn the page over to chapter 16. This is a story I love. Matthew chapter 16. Look down at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, okay, so now this is up outside of Israel in the north, he asked his disciples, and in particular we think here the disciples are the 12, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Son of Man, by the way, is a moniker for Jesus. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, still others, you're Jeremiah, you're one of the prophets, kind of back from the dead. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and then listen to this, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is the first time that the word church is used in the New Testament. In Greek, it's the word ekklesia. Can you say that? Well done. It's a compound word. Ek is a preposition. It's all over the New Testament. It means from or out of. And then klesia kind of essentially means called. So more literally, this word means the called out ones. Jesus is calling out a people, a new Israel, a people no longer based on ethnicity. Hey, you're Jewish? You're in. But now a people based on faith that Jesus is the Messiah and, quote, the Son of the living God. People from all over the map in the language of Revelation at the end of the New Testament. Every tribe and tongue and nation. Jew and Gentile and Russian and Chinese and American and Puerto Rican and South African. Every people group on the planet. Male, female, young, old, black, white, rich, poor, hipster, hippie, and everything in between. Jesus is calling out a new humanity to spread the kingdom of God all over the world. And notice the language, the gates of Hades, or in today's language, hell, will not prevail or will not overcome it. You know, for years, at least growing up, I read this weird statement, and I had in my mind's eye like this freakish cartoon gate like coming at you. It was like a horror movie, like the gates of Hades, the gates of hell. But if you think about it, our gates, imagine an ancient city, okay? Are gates offensive or defensive? Defensive. Gates don't go on the attack, at least not that I'm aware of. Gates are defensive. So the imagery here is that the church will spread out over every square inch of the world and take Hades straight on. And that's exactly what happens. Turn over to Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, to Acts chapter 1. If you've ever read the book of Acts in the New Testament, so there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all about Jesus, and then you get to Acts, and it's essentially a history book about the first three decades of the church, and this is the next time that we read that word, ecclesia, or church. Acts chapter 1, verse 1, uh, Luke is the author, and he writes this, in my former book, Theophilus, which is, anybody know? Yes, the Gospel of Luke, that was book one, this is book two. I wrote about all that Jesus, and then listen to this language, began to do and teach. 
So my last book, what we now call the Gospel of Luke, that was about what Jesus began, and what he's saying is this next one is about what Jesus will continue to do through the church. Skip down to six. Then they, the disciples of Jesus, gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it finally here, the kingdom like once and for all? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. You gotta love Jesus, just no love there, none at all. But, and listen to this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, in all Judea, that's the area in the south, and in Samaria up to the north, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, if you've ever read the book of Acts before, you know this right here is essentially a table of contents for the book. First, the church is there in Jerusalem, and it's in Jerusalem only, right in the capital city and the urban core. Starts with a few hundred people, and then it grows. We'll read that story to thousands. But then years later, it spreads out to Judea all over in the south. Then it makes the jump, and it spreads up to Samaria, where there were Jews and Gentiles. That was a huge move in church history. And by the end of Acts, 30 years later, it's all the way in Rome, the epicenter of the Roman Empire. But before any of this goes down, first things first, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. It's the prophecy. And then out of that, all this other stuff to the end of the earth will come to pass. And that's exactly what happens. Skip down to chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came... They, the disciples of Jesus, or kind of the church, were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. This is all Hebrew imagery for the power and the presence of God. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them, and the story goes on. So the church, kind of the early followers of Jesus, are all together in Jerusalem for Pentecost, which was a Jewish feast, one of three. Pentecost was an agrarian feast to celebrate the first fruits of the harvest. So you're not a farmer for the most part, I'm not. And the basic idea was early on in the harvest, you would have a first fruit, that first, I don't know, head of, head of, head of, no, whatever. You would have that first head of corn or that first head of grain, do you call it a head? Whatever. You would have it, and it was a sign of what's coming. One, two, three, four, five, but eventually there's an entire field or field after field all coming behind it. And so you would come together in Jerusalem and celebrate and thank God for the harvest that was going to come. And this feast over the years became symbolic for way more than agriculture. It became symbolic for how the kingdom of God was going to come one day in the future and with it the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost, so not random or haphazard, this is on purpose, this is God's way of saying, listen, what you, Israel, what you've been waiting for, for hundreds of years is finally here. And the first thing, notice, that the Spirit does is form a community. Skip down to the end of chapter two. So long, 
drawn out chapter, spirit comes, Peter stands up in front of the city of Jerusalem and he starts to preach the gospel that Jesus is the king, the kingdom of God is here. And then at the very end we read this, chapter two, look down at verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So make a church overnight, that's crazy. They devoted themselves, and I love this glimpse. In one paragraph, we read a glimpse of the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, kind of what I'm on about right now, and to fellowship or deep relationships and community, to the breaking of bread. We think that's a euphemism for the table. And to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. So the Holy Spirit had free reign to move. All the believers were together, like there's all sorts of love, and had everything in common, meaning they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Hey, you need money? Here. You need this? Here. You need a car? Here. You need a rental? Here. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, so thousands of people all together, but then they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Eating together, it's just central to the kingdom of God praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people in the city. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Sounds pretty good, right? I mean, almost as cool as our church, but not quite. Now, this church, if you keep reading, was anything but ideal. It was messy, just like Bridgetown, just like every other church on the planet. If you turn the page, you read about this guy Ananias and his wife Sapphira, and it's, it's really weird and crazy. So it was not perfect, but it was a healthy, thriving community. And all I want you to see right now, all we have time for tonight, is I want you to see this. The way the kingdom of God spreads from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the end of the earth, the way the kingdom of God spreads is through a people. By now, hopefully, what, five weeks into the series, hopefully you know it's always through a people. From the beginning of the story, God has been looking for people to co-rule over the kingdom of God. He started with Adam and Eve, but they failed. So he moved on to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Israel, but they failed. And so finally, after failure, after failure, after failure, God said, all right, if you want something done right, do it yourself. And where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus did not. Where Israel failed, Jesus did not. Where you failed, where I failed, Jesus did not. He did what you and I, what Adam and Eve, what Israel never could. And now, on the other side of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, nothing has really changed. God is again, still to this day, he's calling out a people to co-rule over the kingdom of God. And if you're thinking, how will this time be any different? Adam and Eve were a failure. Israel was a failure. How will this time be any different? What's the one thing that's changed? Jesus and the Spirit. We have the Spirit of God That's why you read about failure, you read about failure, you read about failure, and then finally you get to the church. And it's anything but perfect. We stumble, we fall, but the people of God never go back to idolatry and injustice, the twin sins that you read all through the Old Testament. That chapter is over and done with because now we have the Holy Spirit deep inside. That makes everything different. Now, 
Last week, we left off you know, with Jesus' central message. The kingdom of God has come near, or it's finally here. And to make sense of Jesus' kingdom message, you have to wrap your head around this idea that we talk about from time to time, that the kingdom of God, and this is kind of academic language, but it's now and not yet. What that means is Jesus, on a regular basis, would teach in the kingdom of God, and sometimes what Jesus would make it sound like the kingdom of God is here, and then other times Jesus would make it sound like it's coming, it's on the horizon, it's in the future. Well, which one? Yes, it's a both and. The kingdom is here, but it's not here all the way yet. It's here in bits and pieces, and it will spread inch by inch, mile by mile, city by city to every square inch of the earth with Jesus' return. And Jesus' language is kind of like seed in a field or it's yeast in a loaf of bread. It will spread and permeate and go through all of the world. But at the end of last week, you're kind of left asking the question, how? How will this happen? How will the kingdom of God spread? Jesus is not here anymore. He's at the right hand of the Father. We just read that. So how will the kingdom of God spread through all the world? And the answer is through the church through the spirit-empowered community of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Now, this story has honestly changed Bridgetown kind of from the ground up. If you've been around Bridgetown for a while, you'd know that we've changed a lot over the last five years in particular. And honestly, it all started with the story of God. We, um, at least in leadership, for the most part, did not grow up reading the Bible as a story. I did not. I grew up reading the Bible as, I don't know, an encyclopedia of truth or something. You would look up God and sex and marriage and this and that and the other. I had no idea that the scripture was a narrative, one long, drawn-out, sprawling, panoramic story about God and humanity and the world and God's agenda to put the world to rights. And so when myself and a number of other leaders started to wake up to kind of the grand, sweeping narrative of Scripture for the first time, and I was 25, 26, something like that, um, it's like, honestly, it's like I was born again Again, it was just this really fantastic time in my life. It's like I'd read the Bible since I was a kid, and I'd never really read the Bible. And so I was just reading right and left and eating it all up and reading everything I could get my hands on. But after a year or two, at first it was, oh, this is great. We love the Bible's a story and all this stuff, narrative theology. But after a year or two, we started to realize that the way we did church which at that time, Bridgetown was very much an event-based church, a Sunday-based, you come, you do your thing, you watch, hopefully you make a friend or two or 10 or whatever, but then essentially you go back to your life and you follow Jesus kind of all by yourself. Um, We started to realize, man, that does not line up with the story of God. Jesus dying and rising was not to put on a really good event every Sunday night. It was to usher in the kingdom of God to call into existence a new humanity of men and women and brothers and sisters, a family of God to embody the kingdom, to put flesh and blood on the kingdom of God and to spread it to every corner of the world. So we started to make changes. A number of years ago, we made the change to missional communities, and it has been, as you know, a long, hard road, but I would not trade it for the world. And here's a few of the things we've come to believe about the church. If you're taking notes, maybe write this down, and if not, maybe check your email. First off, um, that was lame. Okay. No love, I love you. You don't love me back. All right, great. 
Um, first thought is this, and all of this is really kind of straight down the middle, so just stay with me. We follow Jesus in community. Or put in the negative, we can't follow Jesus alone. This needs to be said in particular in Portland. You know, America, we all know this. America is without a doubt the most hyper-individualistic society in the world. Most sociologists argue in human history. And then on top of that, Portland and the Pacific Northwest really are, depending on who you talk to, the most hyper-individualistic part of our entire country. What this means for the church, this is just the air we breathe, right? So what it means for the church is that, you know, we come on Sunday night, we want to make a friend or two or three and hang out, but for the most part, we just kind of want to do our own thing. But it does not work that way. Jesus did not have, you notice in the story, a disciple, Jesus and Peter. No, he had disciples. It was never singular. It was always plural. Think back to that story. He called how many? Twelve. And 12 became 70, and 70 became a few hundred, and a few hundred became a few thousand, and a few thousand became now billions and billions of people around the world. That 12, that group of 12, was the original missional community. And community is the matrix for discipleship. It's where we flesh out the way of Jesus. It's where we are shaped to become more like Jesus. You know, most of Jesus' teachings are on relationships, in particular if you have ever read the Sermon on the Mount. So put simply, like just to say it straight up, you can't live the way of Jesus if you're not in community. Because most of the New Testament is about how you live in community well. So if you're not, you can't actually follow Jesus. And when I say community, I don't just mean friends. Most of you have friends. If not, sorry. Um, I don't just mean friends. I mean, I mean community, ongoing, in-depth, up close and personal relationships with people that you may like and get along great with or you may struggle with, but people that you are in it together with, male, female, young, old, that you actually do life with around the kingdom of God. That is what I mean by community. I know so many people, extroverted, social, happy, life with the party people that are not actually in community, but don't actually have that. Friends all over the place, but don't actually have community and that is where the kingdom of God where the rubber meets the road is in community we follow Jesus together secondly is this thought the church isn't and you all know this but think with me the church isn't an event to consume but a community to participate in church is not just a two-hour thing on Sunday nights here at FBC church is a community of people who do life together all week long. The Sunday gathering is great, but this is just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much that you cannot see right now in this room. So much depth of relationship and justice and kingdom and life and discipleship together. So if this right here is all you know of church, if you come here on Sunday nights and you like it or you don't really like it or whatever, but you're here and you have a few friends, and that's great, we're happy you're here. But if you're not in community, that's not how you live, then you are missing out. This is especially true at Bridgetown just because of the way we are set up. The best way to think about Bridgetown is as a network of missional communities. All sorts of reasons for that. Uh, the main one is just our size. We're not a mega church at all, but we are large enough that event-based church doesn't work for community here. So if we were 100, 200, 300 people, we would have events all the time. You know, moms at the park every Thursday morning or whatever, Saturday noon, afternoon, you know, ultimate Frisbee, whatever, men's book study Thursday morning. We would do events 
all the time. And you would walk into a room with 20 people and you would make friends and start to do life together. But that just doesn't work with, uh, with our community. There's too many people. And so the way we're set up, the way we operate, is we do life with a group of people, 10, 20, 30 people, whatever, usually in a neighborhood, but not always. And then together on Sunday night, we all come together. And you kind of think about your missional community as your family, and Sunday night kind of as your tribe. And our dream is that if somebody were to ask you from another church, from another city, whatever, hey, tell me about your church, tell me about Bridgetown. Our dream is that you would not start with the two-hour gathering. Oh, wow, we don't have pour-over coffee, but actually the coffee's roasted by a dude in our church, and it's this nonprofit, and all the profits go to this thing, whatever, and our music is like Bethel meets techno. I don't even know what it is, but it's great. <laughs> whatever, and you, our dream is that instead of that, you would say, oh, my church. Well, there's, uh, there's 17 of us. We live in Northeast. We share a meal every Wednesday night, but we see each other kind of all the time. And uh, some of us get along really well. Some of us don't really like each other that much, but we're following Jesus together. And actually, that's really good and healthy and the way it kind of brings out the good and the bad and the ugly with us. And we really have a heart for the foster care system. And so once a month, we do this foster parents night out together as a community in our neighborhood. And we just really want to see the kingdom of God come. Oh, yeah, and then on Sunday night, we get together with a whole bunch of other people at this thing downtown. It's pretty cool. That's our dream, is that that is how you would think about church and about Bridgetown in particular. But to do church this way, it cuts into what the New Testament writers call the flesh. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that language. The flesh is essentially what you feel and what you want apart from the Holy Spirit. And the reality is we don't always feel like community. We don't always want community. It's much easier to come to Sunday nights and consume than it is to show up on a Tuesday night or whatever and eat a meal and share life and do life with people all week long, especially if you're not like great friends with your community. I just want to say this. I don't think I've ever said this on a Sunday night. What happens a lot at Bridgetown is people come and usually they come because they like the gathering or whatever and then they hear all about missional community like, oh, okay, we need to do that and go through basics class and you know, end up in a missional community and sometimes it just like, it clicks. I mean, it's like people are the best of friends, go on to make relationships that last you know, a lifetime. Oh, we're five years old as a church, but hopefully last a lifetime and it's just this like match made in heaven. And then other times it's not like that at all. It's just awkward and weird. You don't really click with people. You click with like some people, but not other people. And it's just this kind of thing. And I just want to say tonight, that is okay. It's okay. Your community doesn't have to be your best friends. We talk a lot around here about the difference between friends and family. Friends are people that mirror you back to yourself. Friends are people you naturally kind of gravitate to, you enjoy, you like to be around. Usually, not always, usually your friends dress like you, talk like you, think like you, vote like you, listen to the music you listen, into, listen to, live in the neighborhood you live in or think is cool. Or like, usually you meet somebody and you're like, I really, this just happened to me last week. I met this guy and I really like this guy. And I'm like, why do I, I just like instant love for this guy. I'm like, he reminds me of me. No wonder I like you so much or whatever. And that's not bad. Like, I'm not down on friendship at all. I have a couple just really amazing friends. Dave was here a few weeks ago. And that guy, I just love like a brother. 
Uh, my friend Johnny in London, I just, oh, I miss him so much. I have some really good, Gerald is a great, I have some really great friends. But that's a little bit different than family, right? Family is kind of just people that you're born into, for good or for bad. And maybe you love your family and you get along great with your family and like you're so into your family and maybe it's not that way at all but it's people that you're in relationship with over a long period of time. In fact, you know, a sign of maturity in community is diversity. I want to say that again. A sign of maturity in community is diversity. I have some people come to me, you know, who are new to the church and say, okay, John Mark, I want a missional community in this neighborhood for young married couples, married less than five years, no longer, no kids, that's just weird, that meets on Thursday nights, go. I go, okay, here. So you just want to hang out with yourself. Great, have fun. Now there's nothing wrong with that. If that's your crew, if that's how you roll, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you only spend time with people who are like you, and if you only spend time with people you like and you get along with and you enjoy, then, you know, who are the same kind of ethnicity, same socioeconomic strata, same stage of life, that's fine, it's great, don't worry about it but you will not grow and mature at the same rate you would if you were to spend time with people from across the spectrum in the kingdom of God. Old, young, married, single, act together, act not together, like the whole thing. So just think about that for your missional community and also for your life. All I'm saying right now is that, you know, your missional community doesn't have to be your best friends. That's just fine. You don't even feel bad about it. That's not the point. The point is, listen, we want to follow Jesus. We can't do that alone. We have to do that with other people. So at some point, you have to pick a group of people and say, man, we are going to intentionally follow Jesus together. We're going to practice the way of Jesus together over a long period of time as family. We're going to be brothers and sisters with the Father as our God, and we're going to do all of that together. So we follow Jesus in community first. Second, Um, Community is not an event to consume, but a community to participate in. And then finally, I just want to say, and I know I say this a lot, but life is better in community. Life is better in community. Yes, community is hard work at times. It's awkward. It's frustrating. It's a pain in the neck at times, but it's so much better. I think we need a balance of idealism and honesty about community and about church Idealism, we need to say like, hey, life is better in community. You were made from the beginning of the story for in-depth relationships with other people. But also honesty, community is not an easy way to live. Both are true. If all we have is honesty, nobody really wants to be a part of it. But if all we have is idealism, then people get, you know, I think turned off by community and slip into disillusionment or disenfranchisement or you know, people start to talk about the church, this amorphous blog out there. I'm like, the, what do you mean by the church? You mean like that one person who hurt you? Or what, like the, what is the church? Or this happens even more often, people migrate from community to community to community to relationship to relationship to relationship in search of like utopia, relational utopia. And as hopefully you know by now, like it does not exist because you're there. And so it does, <laughs> it does not exist. And we never learn to do life with a group of people over a long period of time. Um, you know, I just, got, I just got back, as I said, from South Africa. 
and I was at this church planters uh, or church conference that I was teaching at. And it was this great church planting movement. It's about 20, 25 years old. They planted churches all over Africa, all over the world, in particular in the Southern Hemisphere. It was this great crew of people. Chris Vienen was there. Most of you know Chris, who is the one South African that comes to our church on a regular basis. And he's a great guy. He's become like a second dad to me. And I was with Chris for a few days. We had a great time. And honestly, my main takeaway was just to watch this group of people, men and women, who have been in community now for 20 to 25 years together, who've been planting churches, who've been all about the kingdom of God for not like a year or two or three. I mean, Bridgetown was like six years old, but who've been at it for 20, 25 years and to watch the depth of relationship. These people, and now they're a whole second generation, kids that had grown up and uncles that had done weddings and life and community and together. And it was just, it was so beautiful. My last night there, um, we went to a, a cricket game, which was just so lame. Let me tell you, it was like four hours long and I could not figure out what was happening. I just had no, it was the weirdest game I've ever, and it was... Um, I'm not a sport guy, but it was South Africa versus Australia, which apparently is like this long, like one of this age-old, you know, animosity and whatever. And so everybody was just freaking out. And I'm just in the back laughing. I just thought it was so, no offense, but so weird. Um, but I was there, and I'm sitting with about 12 of these guys who have been doing life together for 20 years or something like that. And I'm just watching these guys laugh and cajole each other and tell story after story. You remember that time? And talk about their marriage and talk about their life. And they were all in town. We were in Cape Town. They were all in town for one of the pastor's wives' 50th birthday. That's what they were there for. They'd actually come to town for that. And I just sat there. And over and over again, I would say to these guys, man, what you guys have is really special. And almost to a time, they would say, oh, man, but we really had to fight for it. We really had to fight for it. There were times when I just wanted to, mm, but we really had to fight for it. And I just thought, man, I want that. 20 years from now, I don't want to go to a cricket game. No desire to do that. <laughs> but I want to sit around with Matt and Anna and Ryan and the people in my community, with Dave and Ashley, with my friends. And I want to say, you know what? We've been through a lot together, and there are times when we wanted to just but here we are, and we're still together. We're still practicing the way of Jesus, not alone, but together. There is something so beautiful and so compelling about that depth and longevity of relationship. And I think this deep ache that I have in my bones, that we all have in our bones for community, I think it's from God. I think he put it there. It's what you and I were made for. This story is not only his story, but it's our story as well. And when we look at the story of God as a whole, this is the part of the story that we live in, right? If you think about the six chapters, we don't live in chapters one and two, like my name's not Adam, your name's not Eve, we don't live in the Garden of Eden. We don't live in chapter three, we're not in Israel, I'm not Abraham or Isaac or whatever. We don't even live in chapter four, we're not Peter, James, and John in first century Galilee. We live in chapter five, we live in the story of the church. And this part of the story calls its readers to participation, and this is kind of where I want to wind down tonight, to participation. Last month, we used the analogy of how the Bible is kind of like a six-act play, remember that? Uh, creation, the fall, Israel, Jesus, the church, new creation. And we use the analogy that we're kind of like actors in the play, and the world is kind of like the crowd. But here's the problem. We're missing the script for the second half of Act 5, the church. 
We have the script for Acts 1, 2, 3, 4. That's like the Old Testament and then the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then we have the script for the first half of Acts 5 in the New Testament. We read about the church in Philippi and Ephesus and Corinth and Rome and how people were working out the way of Jesus in the first century. And then we have the script for the last chapter in Revelation. We know where the story is going. We'll talk about that next week. But we're missing the script for this little kind of intermediate time that you and I live in. And so our job as actors in the play is essentially like improv theater. It's to join and participate in the story and to act it out in our city and our time. Based on what we know of the story so far, based on the script so far that we have in the Bible, and based on what we know is going to come, our job is to live into that story. But for a lot of us, that is just not how we think about church. We think about church more, you know, like a, I don't know, like a movie we watch or something like that. Did you know that there are actually like church reviews on Yelp? Did you know that? And I I looked our church up this afternoon. We only have four stars. Come on, you guys. Get with the program. We only have, Dwarf Hope had five stars. We only have four. Like, what the heck, you know? And I was thinking, what would possess somebody to go on to Yelp and to rate a church, like, without guile? How crazy is that? That's how so many people think about the church. Last night, um, Saturday night at the Comer House is family movie night. After, at the end of Sabbath, we all watch a movie. So usually it's Star Wars. Might as well just call it Star Wars night. But um, <laughs> last night, we watched uh, the latest Pixar film, The Good Dinosaur. Anybody see that? Why are you clapping? It was the dumbest movie. <laughs> that was the first, no offense, whoever you are, but that was the first dud. I can't think of another, is there another Pixar dud? I can't. Oh, Cars, oh. No, that's a good movie, it's just really dumb. It's a good movie though. Anyway, so, you know, we're watching this film, and it's me, (laughs) I just started a controversy here, you know. We're watching this film, and it's me, and it's my kids, and even my wife halfway through was like, I'm gonna go do the dishes. Like, when she says that, you know, it's, it's bad. And so we get to the end of the movie and the credits start to roll and it was just, I mean, it was just lame. The design was weird, it was cheesy, the characters were like super stereotypical, the plot, like 10 minutes in I could tell you exactly what was going to happen. So it was just not, in my opinion, that great of a film. So I get to the end and the credits start to roll and I have my beautiful little kids and the first thing I said is, what a lousy movie. And then I thought to myself, gosh, I I am teaching my kids to consume and to critique. But that's because it's a story that I have no part in. So I don't have a say in the plot or the script or the character development or what does or does not happen. I have no say. My role is passive, not active. All I can do is sit there and watch and like it or dislike it. And I think that's how a lot of people come at the church like this thing that we watch, that we consume. Honestly, I think that the spirit of consumerism is eating the church alive from the inside out in America right now. It has to stop, and it has to stop with our generation, or we will go the way of Europe, and all we will do over the next 50 years is manage decline, and I am not interested in that at all. This is not something that we come and watch. This is a community that we participate in, 
We're much more like actors on a stage than we are spectators in a movie theater. And I don't say this to shame anybody, not even, this is me, this is you, this is all of us. I just want to say the question for tonight is how do we live into this story? For some of you, it means that you need to join a missional community. You're not in one. Maybe it's because you're brand new to the church or the city. and Maybe not. Maybe you've been around for months or maybe even for years, and you're just still not there. For whatever reason, I'm sure you have one. And so the reason, like, I think the step for you is sign up for basics. Come in. Start to live and do life with other people, not alone. Remember, friends are great. It's a little bit different than a people that you say, let's follow Jesus together on a regular basis. And then I think for others of us, the vast bulk of you and me, we, we are in a missional community, but I think maybe the call is just to re-engage. You know, I've been wrestling with this over the last few days, and it hit me how apathetic I have become in my own community. So I'm in a community, like all of your leaders are, and I'm in it, and we're, at, our, we're actually about five years old as a community, and the first two or three years were just like so fun. But then the last year or two, we've just been through a lot as a community, and it's been really tough. And so I'm still there every single, you know, Tuesday night. We share a weekly meal. Hey, guys, I'm there, 110%. But yet it hit me that, man, I've really just started to slide. And I'm really not all that engaged, at least not in the relationships. One or two, but I'm not really all that there anymore. Because it's hard, and I know my way around. We've been through it, and so on and so forth. And so I've just been wrestling with this over the last few days, and I really sense, at least for me, the Holy Spirit kind of calling me back to re-engage to be the people of God. At the end of the day, church is not a building. It's not an event. It is a family. God is the Father. We're sons. We're daughters. We're brothers. We're sisters. Sometimes we get along great, other times, we just want to scream at each other. First thing Jude said when he walked in tonight, I hadn't seen him in a few hours, he said, Dad, Moses hit me right in the nose. <laughs> so I said, you hit him back, right? You know? No, I didn't say that. Um, <laughs> but that's just how it is, right? The best of friends, the worst of friends, family. But there's something just beautiful about family. As I was praying, I'll end here, just right before the gathering, um, just praying and asking God, about tonight, and I just had in my mind's eye um, a Sabbath dinner. Every Friday night, we start Sabbath right at sundown, and we light the candles, and we sit around the table, and I was gone week before last, but the week before that, Dave and Ashley Lomas were in town to teach here on Sunday, and they came into town early just to hang with our family and be friends, and they came over for Sabbath dinner on Friday night, and we just had this great night, just sitting around the table. We ate for like four hours straight. It was so good, and the kids were there, and Dave and Ash had become like an aunt and uncle, and Jude was playing the piano, and Sunday was doing her gymnastics moves, and we were sitting around, and we were talking about the good stuff in life and talking about the bad stuff in life and planning out summer vacation together. And it was just this like, I just didn't want it to end. Partly because I didn't want to do all that dishes at the end. But I just didn't want it, I just didn't want it to end. And I just felt like the Spirit said that, that's what church is right there. It's family. People with all sorts of problems, all sorts of issues, but who do life together. And so that's what God is calling you to. That's the call for me, for you, to live. How will the kingdom of God go forward? One meal at a time, one Tuesday night at a time, one relationship at a time, as you and I embody the way of Jesus together. Let's pray.